All right, so we're back in the book of Revelation this morning. To give you a little bit of review, which is very important because the section we're entering into this morning is very tightly connected to what we were looking at last week, which is this vision of Jesus. Okay, or if you remember this, it's John sees, or an angel shows John, brings, escorts John into the spirit. What that means, we can debate for a long time, but... He sees Jesus, but not as he saw Jesus before when he knew him and ate with him. But this picture of Jesus is different. And he has this white, like pure white flowing hair, right? He has these eyes that are flaming fire. His mouth has a two-edged, a sharp two-edged sword coming out of it. And his voice when he speaks is like, as John describes, it's like it's like the roaring of many waters, like the Grant, like the like the Niagara Falls rolling over down into hitting the hitting the water below that earth rumbling sound. That's what his voice sounds like, right? And his feet are burnished bronze, emphasizing his purity, his holiness, his moral excellence, right? So this is the picture of Jesus. He is not to be trifled with, right? He is scary. And this is Jesus as he is now. It's not that Jesus also isn't with you and Jesus is fully human too, right? He's both of those, fully human, fully divine. But here we have a picture of what Jesus is like. And Jesus comes to John who has now fallen on his face as though dead in front of this Jesus. And he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, fear not. And he, he says, I'm going to give you, I'm about to give you something that I want you to write down. Word for word, write down what you see and give it to the churches, okay? Then we have this picture of Jesus a little different. He's in a robe with a golden sash, and he's walking in between these lampstands, seven lampstands. And each lampstand represents a church, okay? And so what I told you last week was that those seven lampstands represent not just those specific churches, but all the church through all of time, okay? And so I'm going to look at these like types. These are types of churches. And Jesus is walking among the churches, and he's inspecting. He's inspecting each lampstand, and he's tending to it just like the chief priests would do in the Holy of Holies to the lampstand that was there, trimming the wick, making sure it stays lit, right? So Jesus is sort of browsing among the churches, walking along, and it's... It's like when your really friendly but very much in charge boss walks by your cubicle or walks into your office and say, hey, how's that project coming, right? Or when your very friendly but very in charge teacher stands over your shoulder while you're doing, taking a test. Your heart rate goes up a little, doesn't it? Oh, I better do a good job. I better get on task. I better focus. I got to do the job that he told me to do, right? He gave me very specific instructions. I better do that job. And that's what we get here. That's the image we get of Jesus in this text. This is not Jesus coming and saying, let's just hang out. I have no expectations. This is Jesus coming and says, I'm Lord of the universe. He holds those churches in the palm of his hand. That's part of that picture. Seven stars representing the seven churches. Where are they? They are in his hand. He owns and controls them, all right? So I think it's important for us to begin, before we get into these scriptures, is to understand that there are critiques he has for all but one of these churches. And they are serious critiques with serious consequences. And I think it would be easy for us to read through these verses and kind of go, that's not us. We, we, there's no danger here. There's, that's not us. We're not like that. We're doing fine. And we're always going to be fine. And that's not the way to read this. Because Jesus is saying, I am inspecting you. I am looking underneath the carpet to see what you swept under there. And I found some stuff that I'd like us to talk about. Okay? And so it's real serious. Because we don't own this church. So just think about Living Hope Church for a minute. Especially those of us who have been here for a long time. It's easy to start thinking, especially, honestly, for me as the pastor, to think, like, this is my church. I own it. I'm in charge of it. 
right? It's my thing. And it's not. <laughs> it's his. You are not here to put into action my vision. Did you know that? It's a huge mistake for a pastor to make, to treat the church like it's his thing, his vision, his purpose, and everyone that's here is here to, to, to make that happen. That is, that's how you get abusive, messed up leadership, right? I'm just here to do whatever Jesus wants us to do, just like you, okay? Because the churches are in his hands. So when he comes, the owner of the church, and says, and starts poking around in the locked doors and the back closets and under the rugs and, and doing an audit on the books, on the spiritual books, so to speak, we should all feel a little nervous, okay? We should all feel the piercing gaze of that one with the flaming eyes and the sword coming out of his mouth, all right? And so I'm going to push us. I'm not, I'm not trying to be negative and say, oh, we're, we're just, this is the worst church ever. But I want to let Jesus look, right? Let him look at us and for us to feel the heat of that for a little while. And that's what the next few weeks are going to be like, just as a word of warning, right? Just a lot of inspection from God. And I think that's a good and healthy thing, all right? So let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 2, the first three verses. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that's the church's, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. All right, let's stop there. This is the positive part. <laughs> right? Apparently, Jesus has read some good you know, leadership books about always sandwich your criticisms between two positive reinforcements. You give a compliment, then you smack him over the head, and then another compliment and walk away. That's how you do it, right? This is exactly what he does here, right? He starts, but this is a real compliment. This is not setting you up for the rebuke, okay? This is a real thing. He says, I know your works. Like, settle on that. Think about that for just a minute. I know your works and your patient endurance. He personally knows how we work and toil and endure suffering with patience. He's paying attention. This is a huge deal. Because the lie that the enemy sells you constantly, especially when things are not quite easy, when things are hard and difficult and you're toiling and you're working and you're tired and you're a little frustrated and things aren't coming easily when you're having to dig a little harder than you used to have to dig to get to something useful. The lie the enemy gives you is Jesus is not paying attention. God doesn't know what you're going through. You're not appreciated. No one notices. No one appreciates how awesome you are. No one sees how hard you're working or cares. And there's this feeling of loneliness, there's this lonely working and toiling alone thing is the worst. It's like the plight of parenthood, isn't it? Especially you new moms when you're home by yourself with your baby in those first few months. And... Your husband sometimes usually is off working. He's left. His leave time is over. And now you're at home and you have this identity crisis that all women go through when they have, like, am I just like a feeding trough? Like a human feeding trough? And I'm just, do I just exist for this baby? And you just start feeling very alone, very lost, very just working hard all day. You're worn out and tired. And then at the end of the day, your husband comes home like, hey, I had this great day at work. And you're, Durr. and that baby, right, can't, doesn't appreciate what you've done for it. 
That doesn't, that baby isn't going, I love you, mom, for all that you've done for me. Thank you so much for changing that diaper five minutes after you changed the other one. I just thought I'd, I wanted to go in a clean diaper, so I waited for you to change it so that I could go again, right? That baby, and they won't remember. Caitlin doesn't remember <laughs> the time that she projectile vomited all over the living room like a water sprinkler. She doesn't remember. She could even thank me for it now, but it won't mean much, right? They don't, God built this in to us. And it's just a picture, I think, of what it's like. The enemy comes to you and he says, you're all alone. But here we have a picture of Jesus. Yes, he's in charge. Yes, he's the boss. And yes, he is inspecting. But that also means that he's paying attention. And he sees your life and he sees your work He sees your toil, he sees your suffering, and he is commending you for it. Nice job, right? The only thing worse than suffering is suffering alone. So loneliness, you need to see, just based on this one verse, is a lie. It doesn't mean you don't feel it for real, right? I want to diminish what you feel. If you feel lonely, you don't be like, oh, you said it's just, but it's still a lie. What you're, you, ever, you ever realize that what you feel sometimes is a lie? The feeling itself is lying to you, right? It's, it's, it's like an accusation saying, this is correct, this is true, what you're feeling is true. And sometimes it's not. No matter how real those feelings might be, they are really, really not true. And that's what loneliness is. It's ultimately a lie because why? Jesus is standing there saying to you, I'm paying attention. I'm here. And loneliness is an accusation against him that he's not present or paying attention. So this is great news. It's not that the the Ephesian church is not completely blowing it. That's great to know, right? So who are these Christians? I think there's a little bit of history here that I think will actually help us as we read on because... And it will help us, I think, one, to understand who he's speaking to, and from that we can understand how it applies to us, okay? So a little bit of history. One, this is, this church um, is right now, modern day, is located on the western side of Turkey. It is probably even the most unreached, unchurched, I shouldn't say unreached because there was a church there at one point, but least, least representation of Christians in this area of the world than anywhere else. It's like one, no, top, either number one or number two, somewhere up there. That, that should just blow your mind. This is at one time was the, like the center of Christianity. One of the busiest places of, for, for most fruitful places for, for the church on the planet. And it's now one of the least. Now there's some cool stuff happening right now in Turkey. Okay, some really cool stuff where churches are being planted and, and it's beginning to grow and they're seeing amazing like miracles and fruitfulness. Okay, so God is not done with Turkey. However, that gives us some context um, for this church. Ephesus was one of the most prosperous and wealthiest cities in the world at the time. It was famous for its extravagant shrine to the goddess Diana. The Roman goddess, its harbor was one of the few that could accommodate large ships, and so it quickly became a major cultural and financial center and a, and a gateway into Asia. So think like New York City, L.A., big, bustling metropolis, a center place where all, where all these cultures came together and all the money that came with them, all this trade was happening. So all, all this religious influence, all this comfort and wealth and and prosperity and paganism all just everybody from all over the known world coming through there because it was one of the few places where you could bring a big ship and do lots make lots of money okay Paul first went to Ephesus on his second missionary journey around AD 52 on his way from Corinth to Jerusalem you can see that in Acts 18 He left Priscilla and Aquila as well as Apollos there to teach and to lead. He established a church there. He returned three years later on his third missionary journey to great success. And so much so that the silver trade at the temple to Diana languished. 
and the, the, the silversmiths that were there making tons of money doing different, you know, trinkets and things to, to worship Diana were losing money and they were very upset about it. You can see that in Acts chapter 20. The temple to Diana was burned in A.D. 262, so much later it was never really rebuilt. During Paul's first imprisonment in A.D. 60 to 63, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. You may have read that in your Bible. Okay, that's this church. After his imprisonment, he probably made some more short visits to Ephesus, and he set in Timothy as the leader of that work. So if you've read First and Second Timothy, that's that guy. He was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Around A.D. 66, that's just a few years before A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed in the Jewish war. Right at the beginning of that war, we see first see John, John who's seeing these visions and writing down Revelation. We see him in Ephesus. And it was during the reign of Domitian, that's A.D. 81 to 96, that John was banished to the Isle of Patmos where he saw these visions and read about it, which we read about today. Church tradition, I love this. Who knows if it's really true? Probably. It fits in with what John would say. Church tradition says that John was physically carried into the church each week when he was too old and feeble to walk. And he would always speak to the church. Imagine if the apostle John was in your church. He's an old man. It's a beautiful thing. He's probably, he was one of the last. And they would carry him in every week. And he would let him speak because what are you going to do? You're going to not let John speak. Right? He's old. He doesn't have a lot to say. But what is it, does he have to say? He would say, little children love one another. That was his message. It really is what you mean. If you read all of his writing, all of his letters, you see that over and over again. So this is Ephesus, right? It's, I mean, John went to church there. Timothy was the pastor. It was a bustling metropolis. They, they were reaching the nations just being in that one church in that city. And it was full of all this pagan influence. Especially the worship of Diana, this huge temple that cost tons of money, and everybody went there. It was what you did, and that was associated with being a good Roman. So they're still under Roman rule up until that war. So they're still under the thumb of Rome, so you sort of had to go and worship Diana and pay, kind of pay your dues, your cultural, societal dues to kind of tip the hat and continue to run your business and do your thing and feed your family. So that, I think we can relate to a lot of that in our current culture. We live in America. It's almost like modern-day Ephesus, right, just in a different place. So Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for remaining doctrinally and culturally pure. That is an astounding thing considering what that meant for them in this culture. This was not a Jewish culture. So it's not a culture where the only thing that distinguished them from those around them was that they believed the Messiah had come. This was a totally different deal from Jerusalem. Jerusalem had its own problems. We'll get to those later. Jerusalem had its own problems. But here in Ephesus, we, they had the problems like we have. And they remained pure. They kept their doctrine pure. It even says that there were these false apostles who said, I'm, a real, I'm the real deal. Listen to what I have to say. I'm going to add on. To the gospel and they had rejected those false apostles they had kept themselves doctrinally and morally pure they had said to their pagan Ephesian culture no thanks we're out we're not participating we're staying clean and pure we're Christians He says that they had rejected the false doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which we're not really sure exactly who these people are. They're not mentioned very often. They're mentioned again in Revelation one other place. They were probably this group that was teaching that it was okay, if not good, to, for the Christians to participate in these pagan things in the culture. Like, go, go be a witness. All right, go... It's okay if you go to the temple, Diana, you know, double dip a little bit. It's fine. It's no big deal. You're there. We're going to change temple worship from the inside out. Right? You've heard things like this before. And they had valiantly 
rejected that teaching and those teachers from their midst. And Jesus commends them because he says, I hate them. I hate those guys. And you did a good job rejecting that false doctrine and keeping yourselves pure, right? So it isn't, it isn't hard to imagine what it was like to be a Christian in Ephesus at this time. It doesn't sound that all, all that different from what we experience. We have the same temptations. We have the same false teachers. We have the same false apostles, false leaders all over the place. We, we, and, and we should be working diligently to keep the doctrine of the church pure. Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine. Watch it. It's important. It's why Paul puts elders in place. Because it was false teaching. He said we need people who are, that's their job. That's their responsibility is to guard the church from false teachers and false doctrine coming in. Because it's the easiest way to destroy it. It's just make a little adjustment here that ends up way over here. Totally not even Christian anymore. Right? And we're seeing that all the time. If you're paying attention at all to what's happening in the church, we're seeing that all the time. Things that begin as little adjustments to capitulate to the culture and to try to find a place of agreement and common ground in the culture. And we capitulate and capitulate and compromise and compromise. And then eventually we find ourselves completely not even a church anymore. And this is not what's happened in Ephesus. These Christians were surrounded by opulence and success. They had every modern convenience and the constant influence of various cultures and their religions. And not participating in pagan worship practices would have been a limit on their lifestyle in multiple ways. It would have been hard to do business at all and not worship Diana. You would have been that weird guy with the perfume shop or whatever business you had that didn't have a shrine to Diana in his place of business that didn't have a shrine to Diana in your living room and didn't attend temple worship to be seen by all of your friends in order to be accepted in that culture so that those people would use you for their needs, to shop with you instead of somebody else. And so there's a, a historical evidence that Christians in Ephesus were very, very impoverished and poor, had a hard time getting access to food, had a hard time running a business and feeding their families because of their choice to remain doctrinally and morally pure and not participate in what was happening in the culture. So there's a lot to be commended for, right? Roman morality was nothing like the morality that Jesus taught. Jesus, Romans valued strength, power, and the unity of the state over everything else, every other allegiance. Yet here are these Christians squeezed right in the middle of that culture, and they've remained pure. It seems to me like on a monthly basis I hear of another church or a church leader falling, failing to do this one thing. And it really grieves me, and I think it grieves Jesus. I think we've been faithful in this regard. I think we should commend ourselves. I mean, don't slap yourself on the back too hot nicely because it gets dark in just a second. All right, but take a minute, right? <coughs> Faithfulness is a funny thing because it's hard to notice it, right? And Jesus notices because faithfulness is, a, is just a lack of unfaithfulness. It's failing to abandon ship, right? The pastor who pastors that little church out in the country and does it faithfully and shepherds those people for his for 40 and 50 years right never seeing more than 20 or 30 people show up on a Sunday and he goes to do that every week he visits everybody in the hospital he goes to everybody's house he is he knows everybody by name and he does it his whole life and then dies in complete anonymity never writes a book never headlines a conference never gets mentioned in one of those Christian magazines right none of those things he just does that thing for 40 years Nobody notices. Why? Because he didn't steal any money. He didn't run away with somebody who's not his wife. He didn't fall into heresy and say some sensational thing on Twitter or whatever that's heretical. He, there was no scandal, nothing. He just 
faithfully did his thing for 40, 50 years and then died. No scandal. And no one notices, right? What we notice is the unfaithfulness. And here, but this is not how Jesus is. It's not how he is. What Jesus notices and commends is faithfulness. He sees every single day that you don't fail. He sees every day that you, that you just do your job. You're just a good dad, just a good mom. Because it's not just, right? It's actually everything. It's that day in a day out faithful thing over many years that God notices. Jesus notices and he commended these Ephesian Christians for it. All right. Now to verse 4, 4 through 7, still in chapter 2. But, oh, just read 1 through 3 and go home, right? (laughs) Why did I have to keep reading? (laughs) Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Scary words. I mean, I... When I read that, I just land on, I will remove the lampstand. The, the consequence, the threat, the punishment for disobeying his rebuke and not repenting is that he removes his presence. So that means whatever it is he just told us to do is kind of a big deal, right? It's not it's a slap on the wrist. This is everything. This is your existence. You're either a church or you're not a church, right? So what does he mean? We need to think about this pretty, pretty deeply, okay? What does he mean by you have abandoned the love you had at first? I think it's tempting to do, make two mistakes here. One is to interpret this only as an emotional thing, to th- think of love as an emotional feeling only. It is that, but it's far deeper than that. We know that. So he's not just saying you're not feeling it enough. Okay? He's not just saying, well, you're just, I just don't feel the emotion from you like I used to. That's, not, that's, that's connected, but it's not, that's not all of it. It's far, far harder than that. Number two, we tend to interpret this individually. He's not talking to a bunch of individuals. Direct, he's saying, the, he's talking to the whole church. Okay? So he's not just talking about living Hope Church now. He's talking about to all of us over time. Okay. So looking at what history we know about Ephesus in, in particular, it was about 40 years old at the, t- at the time of this vision. Okay. These were second generation Christians. You, might, you probably had some originals hanging around that have gotten really old, like John being carried in um, because he couldn't even get into the church anymore. But by and large, this is a second generation church. The zeal had faded. The enthusiasm of their parents had all but disappeared. The people who knew Jesus personally or maybe were in the crowd when he fed the 5,000. So imagine if you naturally knew somebody personally, like your grandma had actually eaten the bread that Jesus had multiplied and had eaten the fish that came from that little boy's satchel, right? And you're the grandchild or child of that person. And her excitement, she used to, every dinner she'd tell that story, right? Every year at Christmas she tells that story. I was way over, I was sitting on a rock over on the hill and, and the, and, and Peter came walking by and he could, his eyes were like silver dollars and he couldn't believe, right? He couldn't believe every time he reached into that basket more bread and more fish came out. And he handed me all I wanted. I, had, I hadn't eaten that much in, a, in, in months. And she tells this story every year. But for you, 
It's just a story you heard your mom tell every year. You didn't experience it. And so you don't have the same zeal and excitement and joy that she had. Don't define this only in emotional terms. Everyone's emotions towards God are naturally up and down and unpredictable, okay? It's not that experiencing God is not important. That's another sermon. Experiencing God is very important. It's vital. But that's too small of an understanding of what love is. It seems to me to be a more helpful approach to define love for God in biblical terms first, right? Then we can understand what it means to not have it, okay? So, just a survey. Loving God means obeying him. Right? That's one we can think of. It's a biblical you know, vert, uh, definition of what it means to love God. It's obeying, doing what he says. That's First John. The guy who wrote Revelation also said that, right? If you love God, you'll do what he says. If you don't do what he says, you can't say you love God, right? It also means loving one another. Also what John's saying. Right? You can't claim to love God if you don't love each other. Right? John's really into this love thing, right? He says, you obey God, you love him. Don't obey God, you can't claim to love him. Don't love each other. Don't serve, sacrificially serve each other in a visible, demonstrable way. If you read 1 John and his idea of loving one another, that's what he says. Then you can't claim to love God because they're connected. How we treat each other is exemplary of how we actually love God or don't. It also means worshiping God and God alone. That's Exodus 20. Loving God means you worship him. Seems obvious. If you don't love God, you won't worship him. If you don't like to worship God, then you don't love him. Right? These are, now you may be growing in your ability to express worship. Okay? Trying to get more free. To let what's in here come out here. Right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about... Worship, it's not a good sign, okay? If you love God, you'll worship him. So obeying God, loving one another, requires us to be his witnesses as Jesus commanded in Matthew 28 and Acts 1, which seems to be part of what's in view here and what's wrong here in Ephesus, right? Because if we love God and we're doing what he says, then we will do the main thing he told us to do, which is go be witnesses to the world. So thinking it through this way, I think it's safe to say that what he means by abandoning your first love right here means that they have ceased to take the commands of God seriously. They no longer love one another with the same level of sacrificial generosity. They've gotten comfortable. Oh, government will take care of it. Rome will cover it. They're doing fine. That sacrificial generosity and care for each other has dwindled. Their worship has lost its fervency, its authenticity, its intensity. The result is that they have retreated from the work of making disciples almost entirely. So when you stop obeying God because you don't love him, you stop serving each other and loving each other generously, then the result of that is, among other things, is you retreat from the world and stop trying to do the mission of God and your worship dies and dwindles it's pretty terrible they have used their dedication to sound doctrine and moral purity as an excuse to remove their witness to Christ from the world around them they have been faithful to not be of the world but have neglected the command to be in the world this Jesus told us he told his disciples and told us I want you in the world but not of the world. My favorite metaphor for that is a boat, right? You put a boat in the ocean and it floats and it's doing what it was made to do and that's a good thing. If you put the ocean in the boat, it's no longer a boat. It's a rock on the bottom of the ocean. It's a fish house on the bottom of the ocean, right? But it's equally silly, if you've ever been down, probably lately with the hurricane down there, if you drove down to the coast, you saw all the boats out of the water in dry dock up in those things, and they look ridiculous. A boat out of the water is useless. What, you know, what do you, what's the point of a boat if it's not in the water, right? This is how we are. We're supposed to be in the world, 
but the world's not supposed to be in us. And it's ridiculous for us to not be in the world because we're designed to go and be witnesses. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing, right? That's what Jesus is doing. And if you're in Christ, that's where he wants to go, right? We should remember that even the Pharisees were dedicated to sound doctrine. They were the theologians of the day. And they were dedicated to it. They themselves have rejected false teachers, just as Jesus commends the Ephesian church for. They were so dedicated to rejecting false teachers that they killed Jesus. That's how dedicated they were to rejecting false doctrine and false teachers, is they deemed Jesus to be a false teacher and they killed him for it. That's a high level of dedication. And they were absolutely wrong. It's very easy, for, especially for somebody like me who loves doctrine. I love it. It makes me happy. It makes me cry. I like to sit in my office and just learn doctrine and cry about it. Right? It's my favorite thing to do. Right? Aside from sitting at home and watching TV by myself. Other than that, <laughs> it's my favorite thing to do. It's easy to use that as an excuse to not engage with the world and not care about worship and to disobey God. Well, I've got all my checkbox ticked off. I'm this, I'm this. I really, I, I have a, I'm a very strong opinion about the millennium. We're going to get to that in chapter 20. Check, I'm right on this. Check, I'm right that my soteriology is good. Check, my, I believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Check. I got all the check marks ticked off. But when I walk into church on Sunday with my brothers and sisters to worship God, I could take it or leave it. And I'm not too bothered by the fact that my neighbors are going to hell. I'm just not concerned about it. I'd rather sit in my living room and read Spurgeon and feel great about myself. And he's, if that's you, if that's certainly my temptation, Jesus is talking straight to you. He's saying, good job. It's not that those things aren't really, really seriously important. Really are. Your stance on marriage and abortion and all these things that are hot topics constantly on Twitter and Facebook swirling around like a big toilet bowl. Those things are important issues. And there are churches dropping like flies over those things. Just abandoning ship, right? The, the, the ocean is pouring into the boat as they sink down to the bottom and they feel self-righteous the whole the way down, right? It's happening everywhere. Just not to diminish the importance of those things. But Jesus is not pleased if you have abandoned your first love for him. If you are not obeying his commandments if your worship is not, if you're not constantly stirring your soul, commanding your soul to worship God, if that is not a concern of yours, if you're not concerned about your neighbors, what he says to us is, the scariest thing I think I can imagine Jesus saying is I will remove the lampstand from your midst. Verse 5 says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This means that there are churches that claim to be churches but are not. The term church is not a label we ascribe to ourselves. This is powerful to me. It's one that Jesus gives us and Jesus can take away. We are not a church because... I put the name of the word on the sign out front. Jesus is not concerned about the sign out front. He says, oh, I can't remove the lampstand from this church because they called themselves a church. Because Jesus is the one that decides if that's what you are. And if he comes and puts out the light, we can keep the sign out front. He doesn't care. 
but we are no longer a church. We are not a church anymore. Every moment that we remain a church, every moment that the lampstand stays lit, that his presence is among his people, is his divine sovereign choice. It is not ours. And that's what I mean by we don't own this church. We don't even own its existence. And we can keep meeting, right? We can keep coming together at 10 o'clock every Sunday and having a thriving small group ministry full of life and fruit and fun. And everybody's got all kinds of fun activities we're doing. And we're doing all sorts of cool things. And we're all getting the goosebumps all the time. And we're growing because people love it. It's dynamic. It's fruitful. It's life-giving. And Jesus could have, and it's not a church anymore. I mean, that should scare you a little bit, but also excite you a little bit. Because it also means it doesn't matter if you're doing all the stuff right, if you got people even coming and showing up. We could come here tomorrow, and it could be me and Alan. It's still a church. Why? Because Jesus is here. The light, the lamp is lit, right? It has nothing to do with what you say or with what I say. It has everything to do with what Christ says. I think this is a tremendous temptation for all churches. It's not just the Ephesians, right? And it's not just America. This is a type of temptation that every church experiences every generation after generation after generation. And that if at every new generation that comes up is tempted under the same thing, which is to lose the love they had at first. So when you think of the love you had at first, don't think about when you became a Christian. Think about when the church became a church. All the way back in the early church, in these days, what was it like? Think about it. When grandma was a young lady, the grandma who had eaten the bread, the, the loaves and fishes that Jesus multiplied, what was her church like? What were, they, what were they willing to risk in order to just be a witness in the culture? What were they willing to give up and sacrifice in order to supply the needs of some other church like in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was always struggling with poverty. And Paul would collect these giant offerings or people would sell their entire homes. <coughs> Consider that for a minute. When was the last time you even heard such, of such a thing? Of someone selling their house and taking all the money, making themselves homeless. I'm not suggesting you have to do this, but maybe somebody should. Selling their entire house, taking that money, and sending it to a church in another city. Not just for somebody in their town or in their church, but sending that to another city. Giving it to Paul, and Paul takes it and says, here, this is for you guys. That's the kind of generosity that was happening in the early church. That's how far we've fallen. So we're not meant to read this and point at other churches, which I think is the temptation. It's a demonic temptation. So you read this lost your first love thing, remember the, how, from where you've fallen, right? And you immediately start to think of the churches you don't like. And the past, aha, no lamp stand there, know what I'm saying? That's just, you're, you're dodging the gaze of Christ when you do that. You're dodging those white, hot, flaming eyeballs. Saying, no, 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 no. What about you, Living Hope Church? Has the zeal of your worship faded generation after generation after generation? Has your willingness to obey God faded generation after generation after generation? Has your willingness to simply stand in the middle of a pagan culture 
and be different? Has it faded? Remember how far you've fallen. Not just from the day of your salvation. You can start there because most of us were super pumped and fired up when we first got saved. And that's faded. I didn't have that experience. I was, became a Christian as a young child and I, don't, I never had that dramatic conversion experience where I was this horrible, deviant person. And then one day I went to a meeting and I ran down front and I fell on my knees and I got saved and I was different. Those stories are awesome, by the way, but it's not everybody. So you're not exempt from this either because we're not just talking about the day you got saved. Jesus is talking to the church, and he says to the body of Christ, you started out great, and I'm proud of you for, some really, for staying pure, keeping your doctrine clean, keeping it clear, keeping it strong, rejecting false teachers, rejecting false apostles, but where's the love? <laughs> where's the love, right? Jesus is very serious about our worship and our work. He wants us to worship him fervently and love each other sacrificially. And he wants us to make disciples continually. When a church fails to do this, it fails to be a church. That's what he's saying. When a church stops worshiping, when a church stops making disciples, when a church stops obeying God, it stops being a church. No matter what the sign says. No matter how long you've been around. I want this church personally to be around for generations and generations and generations. I really do. I don't want it to die with me. I don't want it to die with Ray Warren who planted this church. I don't want it to die with Alan Austin. I don't. But you know what? I don't want it to live on like that. I don't want it to live on a day after when Jesus puts out the light. Because it's not about this thing that we all own and want to do together. I remember back a few years ago, I don't know if it was two or three years ago, when we, re when we replanted the church. We were having some meeting, elders meeting, and talking about, you know, kind of revamping the vision for the church and everything. We were kind of going around the room, and Alan said something like, you know, if we can't articulate what we're doing here, then why don't we just close up, sell the building, and find another church to go to? Because, you know, we could really be a blessing to another church. Imagine all of us, right, walking into some church that we just think is great and be like, hey, we're here to serve. We're going to throw our weight behind you. Here's all this money from the building we sold and all the stuff. Here you go. How can we help? We could be a real blessing. Why are we here? And it was like, at least in my own heart, like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus has to keep the lights on, right? And he has to decide. He gets to decide what we are and where we are and how we do it. So Jesus gives clear instructions here, right? Remember who you used to be, church, and repent of falling away in your love for God. Then go back to work, right? Go do the works you did at first, which was making disciples. That's what they did. That was the work that they did in the church, was just making disciples. It wasn't their job. It wasn't making money. It wasn't their retirement plan. It wasn't, um, you know, making sure that the, the walls were painted the right color or, or, or the carpet was the right thing or, or any of that stuff. It was the work they did that was significant to Jesus was making disciples. So this is a rebuke to the entire church in Ephesus, not only one individual. So the question is, are you obeying God? Has your worship faded? And are you making disciples? That's what your life, that's the work God's called you to do. Those early days are marked by radical, risky expansion of the kingdom of God in the face of poverty, suffering, and persecution. We'll talk about persecution next time. They were radically generous to each other, a blessing to their community, and sincere worshipers. So what happened to Ephesus, I don't know, but it is not what it used to be. 
Here we are 2,000 years later, and we're having to re-evangelize Turkey. Don't get too cocky about Kernersville. Don't get too cocky about America. Because you realize the center of Christianity for the past 20, 25 years has moved south of the equator. It is not the U.S., and it certainly isn't Britain. It has moved, slowly and quietly moved to the global south. India, South America, Africa. And now, they're, now China is talking about sending missionaries to us. And probably, you know, from the books I've read, 25 years from now, it will be completely moved. And we will be the unreached people. Not, I shouldn't say unreached. That's the wrong term. We are reached, technically. But it's not where the revival is happening. So I don't want us to go the way of Ephesus. Amen? And so the way we do that is repent. That's what he says to do. He says repent. And he defines that as remember how far you've fallen. Right? Remember kind of where you came from, church. Where you came from was this place of zeal, zealous obedience, zealous worship, zealous disciple making. Right? Remember that and go back to it. Just turn and go back. Okay? That's what that means. So I want to take a minute. I want to just pray. I want us to repent. And you can only repent for yourself, but when we repent together, we repent as a church too. So as I've been talking, and you've hopefully felt the, the hot flaming gaze of Christ looking at your life, right? Ask the question, okay? Whatever he has pinpointed, hey, you sort of you sort of gotten cold there. Just repent. Say, Lord, forgive me. And then I want to ask for the same thing the apostles needed. Because they were just like this right before Pentecost. Just dead in the water. Jesus had been gone, you know, a day. And they were just tanked. And so the Holy Spirit came. The Spirit of Christ came and filled them. And we gave them power all of these things that we're asking God to do. So we repent, and then I want to ask the Holy Spirit to come and light us up again. Amen? So why don't we stand up together and pray for that?